The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. The Guardian. Twenty eleven will be remembered as the year millions across the Arab world rose up, deposing leaders and despots protesting against dictatorial rule. For this final focus podcast of the year, we'll be looking back at what happened in Tunisia, Egypt and Libya, where the leaders were overthrown. And with much of the region still in ferment, we'll assess the possibilities and dangers that lie ahead in 2012. As always, young people were at the heart of the uprisings. They were the first out onto the streets to demonstrate, least likely to be cowed, most likely to raise a voice against the authorities. We've spoken to UK-based young people from those countries swept up in the Arab Spring. They gave us their take on events. Tunisia was first to overthrow its dictator. Ben Ali fled to Saudi Arabia in January after weeks of violent demonstrations sparked by the death of fruit seller Mohamed Bouazizi. He set himself on fire after the authorities confiscated his goods. They said he didn't have a permit. That bravery of the first few people who go out into the street because it isn't Bouazizi let himself and then the next day you have you know, 100,000 or 500,000 people um, in, uh, in the Qasba in Tunisia, in Tunis, um, running against the government. This is Mohamed Harath, the son of political activist Mohamed Ali Harath of the Tunisian Islamic Front. His father was forced out of Tunisia for his opposition to Ben Ali. It was, a, it was a build-up, a very rapid build-up, but it's still a build-up. Um, and people taken to the streets in Sidi Bouazid, which was the town in which um, Bouazizi lit himself, and people were protesting by night. And you had groups of maybe 100, 200, 500 men who would go out and, you know, have uh, as a sign of solidarity and, um, and defiance. And eventually when it reached Tunis, um, that is when people, you know, saw this as a... As a, as a potential threat to Ben Ali's power and something that could really be a game-changer in, in Tunisia. Weeks of increasing political unrest and deadly violence has forced the president of the country, Zain al Ben Ali, to leave the country, putting it in a state of uncertainty. Before leaving, Ben Ali sacked his government and called early elections within six months. The government has also declared a national state of emergency. When we heard that Ben Ali had left, um, and that was like a, like a symbol that you know things could could really change, and it wasn't going to be just a crackdown that would um, suddenly you know decrease the protesters. So yeah, it was of course something that we didn't think would happen, and when it did, of course, we were extremely ecstatic. After a wave of street protests left at least three people dead, Prime Minister Mohammed Ghanoushi resigns. When I I consider my resignation will provide a better atmosphere for the new era. I hope, from the depth of my heart, that God will bless Tunisia. Look, I think like when one figurehead goes, the people around him who are also, you know, just as much part of of the of the regime and who have been there for many years, like Danucci and others, um, I think that it's quite natural for those people to try and 
take power because you know the transition between a, a dictator <clears throat> a dictatorship and you know full democracy does take time and that's obviously what we've seen over the past year uh, we weren't we weren't too happy but i think it's natural and everybody realized that this would have to be a temporary measure i don't think that ganushi was kidding himself and thinking that this could be you know like a, i don't know like he could um, try and take a revolution and steer it in his own direction because the people were absolutely clear from day one that they wanted real change and they would do whatever was necessary to get that. Jubilant demonstrators in the court buildings in Tunis, they're celebrating the ruling by a judge to dissolve the political party of former President Ben Ali. It has signaled the end of one of the last vestiges of the ousted leader's era. People realise that, you know, this was an actual opportunity for us to have real elections and allow for multi-pluralism in our democracy and so on. I was never, you know, um, unclear that the the interim government would last for long. I always knew that the people would keep protesting and keep coming out to the street. If they were able to get rid of Ben Ali, they would be able to get rid of anyone. Ongoing protests in Tunisia are continuing to have an effect. The interim government has legalized a moderate Islamist group, which was banned under former President Zin al-Abidin Ben Ali. Legalization was one of the protesters' key demands and paves the way for the group, Ennahda, to form a political party to take part in elections. Meanwhile, new Prime Minister Benji Kaid Sebzi is to announce the creation of a new council responsible for rewriting the constitution ahead of the next election. I think it's really positive that um, we have like a, a multi-party coalition, if you like, in the Constitutional Council, um, because it, uh, with any isolated political science and with any revolution, it's always said that you have to have inclusion. That's the main thing to have. The reason revolution happens is because people feel alienated from the old system. And if you exclude, I don't know, a significant portion of, of the people who aren't perhaps, you know, supporters of, of, of another, then that can be very dangerous. And you don't want to alienate anyone at this stage because the revolution doesn't belong to another only or any other party, but it's for the Tunisian people generally and everybody's thoughts should be considered. So I think it's fantastic that we have other parties also with that Mahdi who are shaping the discourse in Tunisia. I'm very optimistic at the moment. I think it's it's looking quite good for the future, but of course we have to always keep monitoring and, and making sure that you know things carry on. And I think the Tunisian people won't forget to do that. The revolution in Tunisia sent shockwaves across the region. Protests broke out in Algeria, in Jordan and in Yemen. In all three, the authorities were able to survive. Not so in Egypt. Hisham Amara is now a student in Manchester. He remembers what it was like. So it was quite frustrating and the fact that I had friends who lost their eyes and I had friends who were jailed uh, at that moment and the country was on edge and we did not know what the military was going to do. And I think his continuous stance of wanting to remain in power left the country quite vulnerable. All this prompted the president, Hosni Mubarak, to make a televised address in which he called for dialogue, announced he was dismissing his government, but said he himself will retain his post. While I take the side of citizens' freedom to express their views, I also adhere to defending Egypt's stability and security. I will not allow anything that threatens the public safety and order, which will have unpredictable repercussions on Egypt and its future. It was a slap to the face, but that was expected, to be very honest with you. This is a man who's been in power for 30 years and did everything in his power to eliminate all his opponents and consolidate power. So it was expected he was going to fight tooth and nail. So it wasn't something that I wasn't expecting him to come and say I'm going to leave. I think he had to be pushed out and that's exactly what happened. Breaking news out of Egypt. The vice president of Egypt, Omar Suleiman, has just announced that President Hosni Mubarak has decided to step down. 
that the army is right now assigned to take over. Uh, initially, I think a lot of people felt that the military had to step in. It was the only institution in Egypt that was not as corrupt as the, the rest of the regime. So there was a sense that the military had to step in for the betterment of society. That being said, once the military came into power, uh, two incidents that struck in my mind that were kind of problematic. The first one was the lack of, the lack of clarity and the continuous ambiguity in its, in its plans. It did not really articulate any plans that were very, very clear and very time-bound to what's going to happen in Egypt. The second thing that started to worry a lot of people was the amount of arrests that a lot of activists and people who spoke out against the military had to go through. There was about, until today, and that's my numbers serve me correctly, about 12,000 people who have been put on military trials. Egypt's military leaders bowed to key demands of protesters and dissolved parliament and suspended the constitution Sunday. Parliamentary elections last year were heavily rigged. The ruling council said it will run the country for six months or until presidential and parliament elections can be held. Crushed in a sea of humanity, Egypt's new prime minister arrives in Tahrir Square. A scene so momentous in this country, many could not believe it was actually happening. He was a technocrat to a certain level, and he did the post Hassan Mubarak. And for a lot of people, he was a, an honest individual, but I don't think he had the stroke or the power from a personality perspective or even from a, um, uh, the job entitlement that he had to do anything that substantial uh, difference in Egypt. He was going to face an uphill battle regardless, even if he had the power, and the military never gave him the power, and he was not a person who had that clout around him to actually demand that power or even ensure. We begin keeping them honest in Egypt where dozens are dead, hundreds injured after a weekend of bloodshed. It's the worst violence in Egypt since the uprising eight months ago that toppled President Hosni Mubarak. All the talk of a peaceful transition, just talk at this point. For the last four days, protesters have clashed violently with security forces in Tahir Square. These images of a woman being dragged, exposed, beaten by Egyptian security forces are fueling even more outrage in Cairo today. The military was an extension of the regime, and the tactics that were used by the regimes were from day one replayed by the military. The military gave a false hope that we're going to have a, you want democracy, sure, we'll give you elections. But that being said, forget anything else changing. Our power base, how we gain power, how we maintain power, is always going to be there. And you, if you want it off of us, you have to fight tooth and nail for it. So a lot of this was expected. This was none of these tactics that are on display right now that the world media is focusing on is anything new in Egypt. The fact that they did not articulate any clear timelines of how they're going to go about not only handing power to civilian population and civilian control, but even how they're going to get rid of the rotten infrastructure that has maintained the regime. The same infrastructure still exists just because we removed the figurehead in no way, shape, or form to eliminate the corrupt police, the inept uh, bureaucracy that was in the country. By February, with accounts of what was happening accessible to all through social media and through channels such as Al Jazeera, the protests spread to Libya. Mohamed Mesrati was forced out of Libya in 2005. His parents, long opponents of the Gaddafi regime, fled to London after threats to their lives. February 15th, when the first protest, the, the, the women protest, came out, I thought that maybe it could do a change. Suddenly, in February 16th, when the to the first start in Benghazi, all the people with the, with the, with the police fights and everything and the, the Molotov cocktails, I realized that this is the end of Gaddafi. This is the end that we are looking for because all the media focus in the Middle East and the people were protesting. There's YouTube, the, all the updates coming. So I thought, yeah, this is the end of the regime. This is the revolution we're asking for for a long time. The police started shooting at everyone. And six... 
six of the fascists, they got killed. Right now, just right now. Praying to God for help in surviving an intense battle in Zawiya, 50 kilometers west of the capital Tripoli. Gaddafi is the enemy of God, this protester cries out. Seconds later, the gunfire gets much closer. UN Security Council met late last night in New York and has finally approved a no-fly zone over Libya. In fact, it's also authorized all measures to protect civilians from attacks by Muammar Gaddafi's forces. We don't have an army to help, to help us, as it happened when, in, uh, when Hosni Mubarak stepped down or even uh, Zain Abdin. There is no any over kind of there is no any over solutions to be happened uh, against against the regime. So I thought that the UN this time should be you know do some intervention like no, no flies on everything, but not you know not not, not uh, troops on the ground. I was always against that. All Libyans against that. But the no-fly zone should be happening because Gaddafi was killing all the protests by the aeroplanes. Rebels have reportedly entered Tripoli from the west as fighting in Libya appears to be intensifying tonight. Some estimates put the death toll from this weekend alone in the hundreds with around a thousand injured. It's also believed that major clashes have seen rebels capture the capital's Mitiga airbase this evening. I can say, I always say that 2011, you know, and especially in the last six months, for me it was like six years. A lot of things happened during this time, and um, you know, I, I was I was in touch with family and friends in the beginning of the revolution. I was uh, in, in in contact with some of my you know childhood friends who were uprising against Gaddafi, and uh, suddenly one day I just found out that all of them they been killed by the police and the army. More than anything now, the rebels want to find Gaddafi, which explains why they're moving against the small coastal town of Sirt. It is Gaddafi's birthplace. And then Gaddafi ran to a culvert under a road about 100 meters from here. According to our information and human rights investigators, he was alive when he was captured and he wasn't wounded. We are told he was kicked, he was punched, and then he was put on the bonnet of a car, driven up and down, and then he fell off and was hurt. He was taken away after that. In the afternoon of that day, when I heard about his death, and I've seen what happened exactly and how they found him, to be honest, a lot of people didn't like the way the, the the freedom fighter, you know, treated him. But for me myself, I see that they didn't choose this end for him. He chose it to himself. After all, what happened? Especially, let's put the forty-two years of his uh, regime away. But the six months, uh, people suffered a lot, and you know, many people, especially the people who captured him from Israel, and they've seen their uh, their sisters and mothers be raped, their fathers being killed in front of their eyes by Gaddafi's people, and they all knew that all the situation happened is because of this man who would just want to be in his chair. Me myself, as a Libyan citizen who's been suffered a lot, I've seen families have suffered a lot. I've lost lots of my relatives. Uh, I've lost lots of my friends, my childhood friends. All my memories with my friends—they're now just you know only memories. I'm not going to see my friends again, and it's all because of this guy. I'm always against uh, murder and killing and uh, against violence, but I found myself in a situation that I have to accept this violence. Libya's capital, Tripoli, residents could be seen celebrating the death of Muammar Gaddafi and his regime on Thursday. Fighters of the National Transitional Council ended an eight-month battle when they captured the desert town of Sirt, where they found and killed former Libyan leader Gaddafi. Libya now is like a, 
with no regime, with no government, is like a baby. And all Libyans with different ideologies and different ideas, they want to adopt this baby. There's lots of positive sides in what's going on. I'm seeing people who never talked about politics are now adopting different ideologies and, you know, standing always, you know, for their rights. Uh, it's, it's difficult to say that we're going to be, you know, in, we're going to be a democratic country very soon. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, you know, I can say that we are going in the right way for democracy. A view of the Libyan uprising from Libyan student Mohamed Mezrati, before that a take on Egypt from Mohamed Harath, and Tunisia from Hisham Omara. And now in the studio, I'm joined by one of the Guardian's foreign leader writers, the much-travelled David Hurst. And down the line, we have Wada Kanfar, former Director General of the Al Jazeera Network. Welcome to both of you. Um, we've been hearing from young people based in the UK about uprisings in their homelands, one academic um, I read about called uh, the whole thing the youth quake, Wada. Just how much is the Arab Spring actually down to the actions of youth? I think it does uh, uh, go down to the actions of youth. It started at least as a revolution led by the youth and a revolution that was not led at all by traditional political groups or political parties. So this revolution, it started, it took everyone by surprise. The youth themselves were equipped for the first time, maybe in our history, with the right equipment, with the right tools of social media and communication. And they started doing this outside the game that political groups and political elite and governments in this region are used to uh, or have been used to for the last few decades. So definitely the issue of surprise was very important. The lack of imagination from the government side, from the political forces, also helped very much because they could not predict or foresee that these youth, equipped with cell phones and laptops, could really start or initiate such a revolution. So they underestimated their power, and then, uh, of course, they were taken by surprise. So to a large extent, I think, the beginning of this revolution, the credit for the start of the revolution should go to the youth. David, what happens now? Um, do they take a back seat now, or do you think there'll be a place for a future generation in, in, in the governments in these countries? Well, uh, Wada knows this much better than I do. I mean, what's going on in Tunisia is that the, the government is being formed by what we would call a bunch of ex-cons, or people who served a long time in prison, um, uh, who are not youth at all, and some of them have served quite some time in isolation as well. And they're doing a really terrific job um, in trying to bring stability, although they face formidable hurdles. So this isn't, you know, the, the best part of uh, the brightest part of that picture in, in, in Tunisia. Uh, certainly started with the youth, but it has ended up somewhere completely differently. Uh, and they now face you know, really big economic problems, like having just as having having foreign currency reserves to last them uh, uh, to, to to buy foreign imports and also to to pay teachers' salaries. So that 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 isn't a youth thing anymore. It's a question of transition government. It's a question of parties all playing their part. And and uh, from what I can see, anyway, Tunisia is incredibly impressive. Um, the picture elsewhere is all is different. Um, the youth are still out in, in, on, on the streets in, in, in Egypt, and this has now become still a, a continuing pitch battle between the protesters, who are very divided, um, and 
the ruling military council, uh, which is still getting a lot of American aid. So uh, it, the, the youth are still very, very much out there. But um, in, 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 in terms of transitioning to some form of Tunisian-type uh, deal, we're still a long way away in, in Egypt. Well, uh, David, um, impressed with what he's seen in Tunisia so far. I know you've been there recently. Um, is what's happening there the prototype, do you think, for, for, um, for revolutions elsewhere? I think the major challenge that the uh, Tunisians had during the last few days is to form a coalition. And the coalition right now is working. You have the president from from uh, from a secular party. You have the prime minister from an Islamic party, and then you have the third party, which is the leftist one. So the idea of having a coalition and to really run some kind of political consensus was very important to introduce a new model, because the perceived uh, threat, let us say, between two brackets of the rise of is political Islam in this region. Uh, maybe created some kind of uh, negative discussion about the role of Islamists and so on and so forth. But now we see Islamists working with secularists and leftists in Tunisia, and the coalition so far is working very well. However, economically, yes, Tunisia is facing a major challenge. And I think one thing you should notice in all revolutions, most of these revolutions are happening in areas and countries that are poor where the wealth of the Arab world is in another uh, side. You know, you have the Gulf, for example, where the money is, but you have most of the revolution happening in countries like Yemen, Syria, yes, Tunisia, and Egypt. Libya might be an exception. This is why the Tunisians are looking up to Libya in order to support both revolutions in Tunisia and in Egypt, because the Libyans at least have 6 million population, but it is a wealthy country. David, can uh, Egypt move on while the military is in charge? I mean, obviously, we've all seen the pictures of the, the blue bra woman, as she was called, the woman who was savagely attacked by uh, soldiers in Cairo. Um, while, they're, while they uh, uh, hold the reins, um, progress is going to be retarded there, isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, generally, generally, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think the military are the problem. Um, but uh, the military are like a sort of parallel state. You know, they own vast businesses. Um, they have a huge stake in the future. It's far from clear whether they've decided they actually want to go, uh, and they're still holding out for this sort of constitutional role. And, and are, they, are they there until they decide that they will go? No, there's a timetable, and there's been a disagreement about the, uh, uh, the timetable. They said uh, they're prepared to hand over uh, in the summer of next year. There's, 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 uh, as a result of the, of the latest uh, chaos and the rioting and the shooting, uh, about which they've been lying. I mean, uh, there was there was a there was a very very good um, take on uh, on our website, which which sort of contrasted the um, the statements of uh, the 78 year old prime minister, who's basically now just a, a, a spokesman for the scaf of the military council, Kamal El Ganzuri, saying, "Oh, uh, we didn't shoot," uh, and of course there are shots of yeah, ex yeah. exactly that happening. However. Um, there is a case to be said for uh, allowing the elections to carry on and not curtailing them. Um, and it is the military that are, are, are providing the security for those elections. Two of the three rounds have been held for the parliamentary elections. Um, so this is, a, this is a very finely balanced point. But in the long run, yes, they have to go back to barracks. David, let's move on to uh, Libya. We've spoken about Tunisia and about Egypt. Um, what, 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 how do you read the situation there? I mean, they, they do need their assets on frozen to be able to move on, don't they? Don't they in Libya? Yes, they do. Um, 
uh, Libya is still really quite far behind uh, this particular process, and they're still uh, in the position of trying to uh, disarm all the militias uh, and get some form of transitional justice uh, uh, going. Um, and um, and they still have to form basically a national government, and they still have to form things like a, a national police force and a, a national army. And uh, there are very big problems uh, uh, attached to that. I mean, just take one particular example. Um, uh, Saif al-Islam uh, is in Zintan. He's in a jail in Zintan. Mm. Uh, and it's the Zintan fighters who, who got him. So we are several steps several steps back from the position uh, of either um, Tunisia or uh, Egypt. Wada, what's your take on what's happening in Libya? The rebels should become part of the political process as soon as possible. Because, I mean, there are many scenarios that were discussed during the last few weeks. One of these scenarios is to establish some kind of establishment to take care of, of these rebels, the former rebels, and to educate them and to train them and enable them to be part of the civilian society. That did not live up to the expectations of the leaders of the rebel groups. They demand that they should have a stake in politics. And the decision of Mustafa Abdul Jalil, which we heard today, that is going to include uh, from seven to nine leaders of the rebels in the council, the national council, I think is very important step forward. If the leaders of the rebels become part of the political process, then the second issue should be the reconciliation uh, between Libyan society. Within the Libyan society, you have factions and the groups and even the tribes that supported Gaddafi. Some of them, until today, they feel that they have been defeated. And there are many issues that should be sorted out amongst themselves. So a national reconciliation in the country takes precedence. Those who have been killed, some of the women who have been raped, some of the societies that are destroyed, I think they need to sit together and start trying to find this kind of reconciliation. The third stage would be is to start establishing political I mean, political life on, on, on sound foundations, like have political parties. Until now, there are very few political groups in the country. As you know, during the last 40 years of Qadhafi uh, regime, he did ban any kind of political activity. Yes. So the society itself uh, should start to politicize itself and to express itself politically in certain kind of coalitions and the groups, which might lead after that to the elections in seven months' time. David, how much is what's gone before um, informing what's happening now in Syria? It certainly had a huge influence on, on, on effects in Syria. I, I think, you know, if you, if, you want, if you want to use a sort of analogy, um, the youth started uh, uh, and, and, and woke in the Arab Spring, basically woke up what was basically a stagnant pond. Uh, of, of, of Arab politics in, in, in all these places. And now it's transformed it into sort of the maritime equivalent of the coast of Cornwall with huge currents, very turbulent, surrounded by razor edge rocks. And those rocks are very, very much to be seen in, in, in Syria, um, where you are, you're talking about something really quite dark and, and different. You could possibly be talking about the split up of the country. You've certainly got a much more internationalized dispute, not in the terms that Libya was internationalized, but internationalized in the sense that you've got these major powers uh, around Syria, all of whom have a key interest in, 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 in what's happening. You've got Turkey, you've got Iran in the background, you've got Saudi Arabia, all of them extremely frightened 
but and that's leaving aside Russia and yeah. and and, it, and its various shenanigans with the, with the naval base there. So this is a much much more turbulent. And the other uh, 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 situation, the other r- real ingredient that uh, th- uh, that you've got is sectarianism. So um, uh, you have a real possibility uh, of, of, of regional earth tremors going on, and you only have to look at what's happening in Anbar at the moment and in, and, and in Iraq, where, where the Sunni fighters are, uh, the jihadi websites are up against uh, uh, saying we, we must help our Sunni brothers in, uh, in, in Syria, doing the exact opposite of what actually happened yeah. during during you know the hottest stages of of, of the Iraq War. Well, here's a question that uh, specifically framed for, for you, given your line of work. You're both media men here with us. Um, how much a part has the media had to play here, um, in particular the social media, in in fueling these protests? I think the social media started, as I said, the the, the whole process itself. But later on, media by large, including Al Jazeera and TV stations did uh, you know uh, uh, amplify the voice of the of the youth and and gave it uh, some kind of professional uh, outlook and also credibility in the eyes of the general public who did not have uh, maybe a lot of access to internet and so on so definitely media is is very important uh, going back to Syria for example uh, most of the material that are shown on the screens all over the world are actually sent through internet, uh, social media websites, because no professional uh, TV journalists are allowed to go to areas where you have protests. Uh, But also to comment on what David has said, I agree with him, it is becoming a regional issue rather than Syria uh, alone. Uh, What happened two days ago and is going to continue the next few days is the issue of a crackdown on the Sunni leaders in Iraq by the government of Maliki, which is supportive of the Syrian regime. Uh, you have Tariq al-Hashimi, the deputy, the vice president, who is right now in the Kurdish territories, and he cannot go back to Baghdad because he will be arrested. Right. And you have threats against the deputy prime minister and the speaker of the parliament. Uh, all of them are Sunni leaders uh, that they might also be arrested for certain kind of cases. And everyone knows in the region that the issue of cracking down on the Sunni leaders in Iraq has something to do with Syria and securing Iraq as a strategic debt for Syria just in case in the future if there is a foreign intervention or if there is any attack also against Iran. So we see from now on this regional dimension growing much bigger and we may see the competition between Iran and Turkey over both Iraq and Syria growing during the next few weeks. David, what's going to be our role here? Is it going to be to sit back and watch this all unfold or will there be more talk of interventionism, do you think? Well, it depends who we are. If we, if we are America, um, you know, the, the, the slogan at the moment in, in, uh, in Washington is we've, we've, become, we've gone from a position of policy makers to policy takers in the Middle East, and that's a bit too glib. But um, it definitely... There is a truth about it that 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 America is much more on the sidelines. I mean, America's done two things. One, one is, is it has reluctantly and belatedly accepted uh, the view of the streets. Uh, on the other hand, it has actually reinforced the position of the monarchies. Uh, so it's four square behind Saudi Arabia, Jordan, where the fun is still to start, and I'm sure it will. Uh, Yemen, uh, uh, the, the Saudi-backed. Uh, um, 
attempt to to uh, to get a uh, an amnesty passed for a brutal dictator in in in, in President Saleh. So uh, America behind the scenes is up, up, up playing basically two roles. Uh, uh, the, the the front desk position is yes, of course we support democracy. And this is this is a, it's a terrible thing that uh, women protesters have been raped. But on the other hand, we'll continue giving the Egyptian military 1.3 billion dollars. Mm. Well, can I just, get, in the time we have left, get uh, a prediction from you? What, what, this all moves incredibly quickly. What do you think is likely to happen, say, in the first three, three months of 2012? Everything depends on Syria, actually. Of course, uh, Egypt and Tunisia and Libya, you have a political process that will start and you may have some difficulties and complications. But the issue of Syria is going to be the cornerstone of major uh, debate and discussion and conflict in the region because it's going to be regional and it will involve a lot of countries and definitely the outcome of this kind of uh, you know protest in Egypt in, in Syria or the revolution of Syria will define what shape the new Middle East will take so all eyes in this region are going to be directed at this moment in time towards Syria and, and the, the talk here is of the concern about the march of uh, Islamists uh, uh, taking advantage in, in, in various countries is that something we should worry about not at all. Actually, Islamists at this moment in time are not going to change the status quo. In my opinion, the Islamists now will be engaged in events, details, and programs and policies that will continue uh, the current balance of, of, of understanding and power in the region. Uh, I don't think that uh, they will shift dramatically uh, events on the ground, but they will try to stabilize uh, their countries like Tunisia and Egypt uh, and Libya maybe in the future or Yemen and a lot should be done in order to stabilize and I think so far monitoring the statements of Islamists and their reaction and their uh, political discourse uh, they are trying to reassure everyone that they are uh, going to be part of national consensus rather than uh, some kind of uh, sectarian or religious uh, rule. Well, we'll keep an eye on that, but of course these events unfold using a time frame of their own. Alas, we don't have that luxury and we're out of time for our podcast this week, indeed for our Focus podcast this year. My thanks to Wada Kanfar and David Hurst. I'm Hugh Muir, the producer was Peter Sale. Thanks for listening and see you in 2012. great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.